You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Margaret Grebovitz and Kiff Bamford, editors of a new collection of essays entitled Leotard and Critical Practice, published in late 2022 by Bloomsbury. Margaret teaches political theory at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. She is the author of a number of scholarly and popular media pieces, ranging from French critical theory to reflections on mountain climbing and the social cultural meaning of dogs in contemporary life. Margaret is the author of six books, Why Internet Porn Matters from 2013, Beyond the Cyborg, which was co-authored with Helen Merrick in 2015, The National Park to Come, 2015, Whale Song, 2017, Mountains and Desire, 2020, and Rescue Me, Dogs and Their Humans, from 2021. Kiff is a reader in contemporary art at Leeds Beckett University in England. He is the author of Leotard and the Figural in Performance, Art, and Writing from 2012, and Jean-Francois Leotard, Critical Lives from 2017, as well as the editor of Jean-Francois Leotard, The Interviews and Debates, 2020. In this conversation, we discuss the meaning of Leotard's legacy, the place of the postmodern in contemporary theory, and the tasks and labor of editing a collection on a critical, yet all but forgotten late 20th century thinker. Kiff and Margaret, hello. How are you two? Hello. Hi. Fine, thank you. <laughs> well, it's really great to uh, have a chance to sit and talk with you both about this uh, new volume that you put together, uh, Leotard and Critical Practice. Um, I guess I should start with the full disclosure that I did contribute, but I'm not asking you to um, yeah. uplift my contribution. But, um, uh, you know, when I ask you for your favorites in the volume. <laughs> but um, but I, the volume arrived, uh, you know, a week or so ago, and I immediately started reading through it. It's a fantastic collection. Um, and I think extremely timely. I was really happy to see in 2022, uh, revisiting Leotard's work in light of so many of the things that have happened in the last 15, 20 years in philosophy and sort of cultural, literary, aesthetic theory generally. And I think the volume is really important for its diversity of themes. And so I really look forward to talking to you all about the project, where it came from, and some of the, the choices that you made in it you know, what it says about the future of Leotard's work. And maybe in terms of getting started, I wanted to start, and I'll, I'll ask you first, uh, Margaret, and Kif, feel free to uh, <clears throat> add, you know, what motivated you to do this? When we write a book, I think there's a sort of glory of the author, and, you know, that can motivate us yeah. to, like, write a book, because sure. it, you know, writing a book requires a lot of energy and, and, and existential investment. Edited collections, I always say this, they require in some ways just as much effort and work, um, especially, yeah. I imagine, during the pandemic. Um, 
So something has to pull us through projects, whether we're writing or editing, and it just seems particularly pointed in the case of editing a project. So I wanted to just ask in terms of, you know, ethical concerns, personal, philosophical, you know, what drew you to this project to put in this kind of time to assemble a volume? So Margaret, maybe start with you. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I think of this, uh, I think of, of all the things that I've done, this has been the most intensely collaborative thing that I've done. Hmm. So I can't really talk about my own motivations. Um, uh, let me start that over. <laughs> I can't, I can't really talk about my own uh, motivations um, without, without mentioning this constant conversation that Kip and I were in. For, mm -hmm. you know, for since since we met in person, really, we met in person, I don't know how many years ago now at this uh, um, symposium about the different at Indiana University. And of course, I knew who Kip was because I was insanely jealous that he had written the Critical Lives book about Leotard and I hadn't. <laughs> and I remember when I first discovered that such a book uh, had come out, I was like, who's this joker? Who's this guy? Who does he... <laughs> Who's this Kiff Bamford think he is anyway? <laughs> and took your uh, book, man. <laughs> and I, I loved the book and uh, and I was I was jealous and I wanted to meet Kiff as soon as possible. And then eventually we did. We met in Bloomington, Indiana. And really throughout that symposium, we kept um, returning to this kind of mutual agreement that it was time to pick up these works again. So we knew we wanted to do something. Um, we knew that e each of us knew that, that, that they wanted to do something on Leotard. And then we knew eventually that we wanted to do something together. Um, but then started a long conversation uh, that went on for, I don't know, at this point, I don't remember because it was before the pandemic and I don't remember anything. But uh, yes. it's but like it last this, century at this point. I know. Remember the days, right? Um, this was in those days. And what I do remember about that time is traveling too much, being under enormous stress, uh, complaining of depression, all my friends complaining of depression. Um, I remember the time right before the pandemic hit as, as this time that things were really ramping up and they felt unsustainable. I mean, they really felt mm. unsustainable. And we were talking all the time about how unsustainable they were. And so it's at that moment that we came together and sort of asked each other and ourselves, what would a collection about Leotard now have to look like in order to mm. feel like it was worthy of the kind of work that, you know, that John, you're talking about, you know, having to put in, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so <clears throat> we knew it had to be different somehow. We knew that it, mm -hmm. that we wanted it to um, perform some kind of intervention. But we also knew that people hadn't really been taking up Leotard for, for years. He'd been mm -hmm. sort of forgotten and, 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 you know, pushed to the side. Um, and so we didn't know who would respond. We didn't know, um, it was, it was very hard to try to predict what would come in, what kinds of contributions would come in. So, yeah, I don't really know how to talk about my own motivations. It was, it was always with Kif, 
And mm-hmm. Kif was always the one kind of pushing it forward and saying, we're doing leotard again, right? Like this is we're we're going to <laughs> foreground him again and say, you know, we're, we're reading leotard again, seriously. And me going, but it has to be different this time, man. And, <laughs> and, and that eventually um, just, just became, you know, became this book. I mean, when you co-edit, you need to be co-editing with somebody who can email you with the, Hey, could you get that done without it ending the friendship? <laughs> if nothing else. So. Yeah. And also you need someone who can tolerate you responding. No, I can't. <laughs> oh, I can't too. get it done. I need you to do it and I'll do the next thing. I promise. <laughs> yeah. There was a bit of that give and take, wasn't there? There was. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so, well, because that then was happening during the pandemic. So, as I recall, Kif, the pan- I mean, my the the trip that I had next on the books was my trip to the to to Leeds. It was. It was. It was. It was my trip to come and give this massive presentation that Kif had arranged in this huge, glorious lecture hall um, about my latest book, and uh, and the tickets were booked. The tickets were booked. The lodging was booked. Uh, the I, you know, I was in conversation with the with the people who were going to make the film of it. Right, it was going to be filmed, hmm. so it was hmm. like they were giving me specific instructions about how to handle that kind of situation in a lecture hall. And the next thing I knew, it was just all over. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and yeah, was we, gonna, that was also going to be a, a situation where we'd get chance to talk face to face about the developments on the collection as well. Um, that was going to be our mm. first, and and it would have been our only chance, right, to meet and um, and and plan this out further and and really um, come to some agreements about it. So we ended up doing everything, you know, remotely as as the pandemic unfolded. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I should add, and probably Margaret's modesty hasn't allowed this, but the the, <laughs> the, the role that she played very much was to make um, me and therefore the project and us together much more ambitious uh, hmm. in terms of addressing, you know, what's the relevance of Leotard now, what is a new Leotard looking like, and let's bring in as many people as we can because mm-hmm. prior to that, I, I was being comparatively timid. I mean, my motivation was um, driven by it, not only my personal kind of um, obsession with Leotard, if you like, um, but my observations that there are scholars working in uh, different academic areas that don't talk to one another and that ignore certain aspects of Leotard's work mm-hmm. and that, uh, perhaps mm-hmm. the perhaps the best example that that has filtered through into the collection um is the exhibition that Leotard <coughs> co-organized um in Paris in 1985 um titled Les Immaterials uh, the immaterials it kind of translates and um this has an increasing status within exhibition studies um mm. but within philosophy it hardly gets mentioned and I would like to think that that contribution, it was very much a collective event, but that, mm-hmm. if that contribution is a really significant part of Leotard's philosophy and him doing philosophy in a different way. 
And I think that's what's kind of morphed into this idea of critical practice. And that's what draws me to Lyotard particularly, is that he is an example of somebody who um, works in other areas, um, not as kind of a dalliance, not just kind of dipping your toes in, but really getting involved. Mm-hmm. And you know, so when he was when he was teaching film studies, he made a, a short sixteen millimeter film with his um, students, and he went to experimental film festivals with them. And it's the same mm-hmm. with Les Materiaux that took up um, two two and a half years of his working life, and mm-hmm. in a, in a way that at that point no other philosophers had done. And so this is this is something that I wanted to. Um, bring together by deliberately looking at and and seeking contributions from different areas and mm. and the one thing that that um, margaret didn't mention is that when we were at the university of indiana claire nouvet was there as well and we said to each other oh we've got to we've got to have claire <laughs> and uh, she did yeah. one of those kind of non-committal morning things outside on the doorstep saying yeah yeah i'd love to contribute to something on leotard before we'd even propose anything and so we held it to that (laughs) (laughs) so i'm curious if this uh follow up a little bit on what you were saying and i'm also curious uh margaret your thoughts on this you know what is it about leotard today right i think there's it's you know there are two ways to not only two ways but there are two ways that come to mind immediately about why to put together a volume one is to sort of take stock of a figure who who was a big deal in the past, has faded a little bit, and let's sort of reread his you know, her works. Then there's the well, there's something about this person, you know, in this case Jean Francois Lyotard, who it's something about them that it's important for us to make this volume, like that he has something to say. Like, what is the you know, is there something that you think he has to say in 2022 as, you know, for me, what a sort of quintessentially 80s and 90s thinker? And I have more questions about that later. But, you know, what is it about Leotard's thinking that strikes you as relevant in this contemporary moment? I think there were two aspects in particular that make Leotard important now. One is what he's saying or doing in his work, and the other is how he's doing it and i kind of alluded to that in terms of the um, the involvement in other practices yeah um, that's so and i guess the third is the, the would be the means by which the two come together um mm. i think it's generally agreed that there's a need to rethink what what we think we know whether it's systems language representation um mm-hmm. and that's what you get continually from leotard but what makes him perhaps different is to other thinkers who propose him things is that he isn't wanting to arrive at a particular position. He's not wanting to dismantle one system in order to build another, mm-hmm. but it's a continual process of arriving at a beginning. And I think this is what makes him exciting, but also really difficult um, mm-hmm. as a thinker, not necessarily difficult in terms of, being difficult to read. I mean, at times, some of his writing is the most beautiful, I think, of philosophical writing. It's really seductive. Um, and then he brings you up short and makes you question uh, what mm-hmm. it is that's just seduced you. Um, and perhaps what's most important for this moment is what this ruse is doing. Um, it's opening us up to 
what I've increasingly termed taking from Lyotard an uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a state that he's referred to as a, a passibilité, an openness to that which cannot be articulated within the current parameters of discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that you'll recognise from the different and maybe uh, it's kind of behind the cover of the book. I know that listeners can't see, but we've we've oh, chosen... I, I, I should say oh. the cover. The cover will be on the podcast, so they'll be able to look at it when they listen. So. Excellent, excellent. Because yes. it's a really dramatic image on the cover of the book. It, it's the artist Harold Offay photographed with three large white balls crammed into his mouth in kind of an exaggerated smile. And we were able to respond to this in the open to the introduction, talking about a mouth stuffed, silenced, unable to speak, and yet expressing through the action um, a performance and works that indicate something that's perhaps echoed through many of the contributions where writers are searching for a different way to present an experience and to attest to different injustices which mm. are forgotten and yet which assert themselves um, every day. You know, and mm-hmm. where these are geopolitical injustices, racial injustices, climate injustice, economic injustice. And I think this is why Leotard is important to pay attention to now because he he forces us to listen to that which gets silenced or which never finds its voice in the conventional sense. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that, that's, that's kind of the impetus for me. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why we, we found ourselves kind of... Um, rather than continuously returning to the figure of the postmodern, which, you know, John, as you, as you um, pointed out in our last exchange about this is sort of, is sort of dead or on its, or it's been killed or something <laughs> like it's, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be, to be getting much traction these days or certainly not in the way that it, it um, it's useful in any way. We wanted to, I think, take focus away from that and and really turn to these other aspects of Leotard's thought, like, you know, articulating the inarticulable. And um, something I like to to return to is um, is when Leotard asks, "How do we, um, you know, how do how do we how do we do things uh, in a world w- in which what is to be done is as if it were already done." right? Mm -hmm. How do we write in such a world? How do we do, how do we do higher education in such a world? Mm -hmm. Um, that, that feeling that there is a kind of closing of possibility, I think is just getting ever more intense in late Mm -hmm. capitalism. Mm -hmm. The later the capitalism, the stronger that feeling that the I don't know. I don't know what the right metaphor is to use. You know that 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 the sky is is kind of closing in on us, or something. That there's a mm-hmm. um, right. That there's a kind of you know in quotes no exit. Um, mm-hmm. And and Leotard was very aware of that already decades ago. And I found myself wondering what he would say now, right? When it's yeah. when it's happening, and when it's when it's happening, and when it's such a big part of daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Yeah. So I think for me, he just sort of becomes, it's not that he's still relevant. It's like he just becomes more and more and more relevant, those aspects hmm. of his work. Um, I'm also very interested in, in, the, in the critique of education and in, his, in him as a philosopher of education. And I hate that term. Because mm. philosophy of education always gets sort of relegated. First of all, I just hate philosophy of blank. That's just that's just got to go. We got to do away. I'm with, with that. you on that. <laughs> yeah, that's got it. That's just we're just not doing that. Um, but but uh, but philosophy of education always gets kind of relegated to the education department. And who knows what goes on over there? Certainly not the philosophers. Nobody knows. It's some like weird vocational school. We don't know. We're afraid of it. We don't trust it. We don't take it intellectually seriously at all. And Leotard, I think, um, upended that binary distinction between like education schools and schools of humanities decades ago and called for that and demanded that. And it just never happened. Right. I think mm -hmm. that, that that difference keeps getting further and further kind of entrenched um, when what we need to be doing in order for institutions of higher education to become places of intervention we really need to to be looking at you know critical university studies and and the mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. the kinds of actual results that that could produce right the kinds of degrees that it could grant and to whom mm -hmm. right that needs to be what we're doing now right that that's a that would be I, and, and so for me leotard is this kind of quintessential um, philosopher of the crisis of education hmm. And so I, I was very, I, I, I really wanted us to, to make a book that, that wasn't a kind of pre-crisis commentary on a French philosopher, right? But that was a, that was a book that was sort of from coming from the belly of the, of the crisis of higher education. And how do we do that? And that's, it's very hard to do because the moment you do, you know, oh, so philosophy of has to go, but also proper name and like object of inquiry also has to go. So like, it couldn't hmm. be a book that was like leotard and education because mm -hmm. we knew the kinds of readers that that would attract. We knew the kinds of readers that would repel. We knew that it was that, 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 that discourse and that kind of formula was already so overdetermined that we just knew it wasn't going to work to, to, yeah. to do what we wanted. Right. So so that's what we're, that's what we were in. For me, the education question is, is very, very important. And how do we, um, actually, uh, be true to how seriously Leotard took what was going to happen to education and how he, you know, yeah. predicted it. I mean, it makes, I mean, you, not to sidetrack us too much, although I don't think it's a sidetrack at all, but I think there is a really serious question coming for, intellectuals, which is as we watch what's happening to higher education, which is not going to, is not, it does not appear to be anywhere near getting any better and just accelerating in terms of worse. There is a real question, you know, did we ever write about it? Did we ever teach about it? Did we ever think about it? Or did it just happen to us as intellectuals? And so I was listening to you talk, Margaret, about that. And I, I just kept thinking like, we don't talk about that because right. as you said, philosophy of education is something in a vocational school or what we imagine to be a vocational right. school. Um, I think, you know, colleges of, of education tend to, to 
have you know tracks here and there that are actually quite critical and interesting, uh, but they definitely don't float over to the humanities, to literary, cultural, philosophical theory. Um, and so, but thinking about our own practice as embedded in something in crisis, I, I, I like that as not just a feature that you you think is important about Leotard's work and about this volume, but also as something we ought to be taking away from from that as a spirit. I mean, how do we how do we think in a time of crisis about our own crisis? Partly because it's worth thinking about. One always ought to think about a crisis. But also, I, I like to think in my own uh, writing and teaching, actually, of, you know, what in 50 years would people say if I didn't do this, right? Um, I, I've said many times in, in when I've taught this class, I teach a class on race and mass incarceration in the U.S., and I always start the class by saying, you know, in 50, 60 years, I think if you're like me, a black studies professor, and you don't teach about the crisis of our day around race and incarceration, in 50, 60 years, it'll be the equivalent of living through the civil rights movement as a black studies professor and never saying anything about it. But this is like writ large, right? It's like, it's like in a time of, of, of education crisis, what does it mean that we don't talk about education in crisis <laughs> as educators? in a time of crisis. It is a, a really striking. So sorry to go, go on, but it's that really, um, I think that hit really directly. Margaret, I'm glad you, I'm glad you drew out that aspect of the volume. And if you don't address it directly, then you become complicit in it as I'm sure is true in the U S but in the UK, the employability factor is the way in which courses are rated now, you know, how, what percentage of the graduates are, have so-called a, a graduate level um, job afterwards and teaching in a fine art and uh, other allied departments where once upon a mm. time it was that um, studio where you had time to think and time to experiment and you didn't have to tick the boxes. You know, you, you, you find yourself having to, or I catch myself justifying to students why they are doing this in terms of the, the vocational skills that it will equip them for, which shouldn't be what we're doing we should yeah. be actually asking those very questions that both of you just mentioned and sadly that space seems to be not taken away but it's it's let's say it's moved somewhere and it's a case of finding mm -hmm. it again yeah i mean it gets to you know in, in this um, maybe a segue into a, another question but i was also struck by what both of you were saying in terms of you know, Leotard thinking in in the 80s and 90s and thinking in, in 2022, right? Uh, what are we, like a quarter, quarter century into the 21st century? And, um, you know, that, that, you know, I was also trying to think as you were talking, Margaret, about what, you know, you said like the sky is sort of closing in and you had your hands gesturing in this sort of, you know, it's like the worst embrace possible, right? <laughs> it's a sense of suffocating of possibility, which is part of the vocational turn, even in humanities education. I mean, I think like I'm uh, 49% because we actually do percentages here, 49% in the English department. And the vocational aspect is creating spaces for teachers to get training to teach English. I think that's absolutely important. You know, then in African-American studies, where I have my 51%, we have a certificate program in diversity and inclusion, right? Where you get a certificate with your education, right? And it's a sense of really closing off possibilities. 
And so I like that idea, yet part of what Leotard's work is committed to is working at that moment of suffocating closure in order to open up new notions of possibility. And so one of the things I did want to ask both of you, and maybe start with you, Margaret, is about, I know you said you sort of wanted to move beyond this, but I'm going to drag us back to the term, uh, the postmodern. You know, as someone myself, educated college and graduate school in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, the idea of the postmodern was everything, right? Mm, And that book, you know, the postmodern condition was part of it. It was a crystallized sort of intervention, but it was part, you know, a centerpiece of a broader movement. Um, It really does strike me, though, that, you know, all the critics, you know, 99% of them uh, were sort of clueless polemics against the postmodern. Right seem to have done a lot of reputational work on this term. Mm. Um, Even though, of course, you hear these remnants that are actually quite liberatory about like disputing a narrative, which people, you know, that kind of language of, I want to, you know, I don't buy that narrative. I want to think about other possibilities, you know, whether it's a narrative about domestic life or narrative about capital accumulation, right. To open up other possibilities. And that always, you know, it always seemed to me to be the, the central motivation behind the postmodern was that proliferation of possibilities rather than their closure. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I wanted to ask both of you to start with you, Margaret, you know, what you think this volume and the essays in it might do to shift our appraisal or even just motivate us towards a reappraisal of this notion of the postmodern with this sense of an opening of possibility in mind. Man, I have no idea. <laughs> you have to edit that out. Um, <laughs> I, Kif, uh, you can you? I I really I mean I I don't I don't know what the volume will do. Um, I know one thing we. Oh, Kif, I'm going to mess this up. You got to help me. Um, okay. Yeah. You help me. Um, I was surprised, actually, how many contributors did come back to the postmodern. Mm. That that surprised me, and um, that's one thing that I'll maybe take away from the experience, um, because I, until comparatively recently, uh, I took quite a trenchant position that. Um, the postmodern condition is unrepresentative of Leotard's work. Therefore, um, we need to look elsewhere. And I, right. I, and I was quite dogmatic about that for some time. And then I've kind of vacillated a little bit and I've come to admit the fact that even today, when students do encounter Leotard, it is still the postmodern condition. And if people refer to him that's their first point of call and i'm thinking that maybe yes it's overshadowed all his other work but maybe there's another way that we can use it as a way into his other work and Mm. one way would be to um use it as a stepping stone to other volumes by leotard that use postmodern in the title um there's a curious little volume called um the postmodern explained to children. Uh, there's a late volume which is full of brilliant essays called Postmodern Fables, 
And this demonstrates that he was staying with this term for over a decade and in this annoying way that he has, but one that I completely celebrate, shifting <laughs> the meaning and his application of the, the term postmodern continually in that good way that kind of sometimes in response to other people's rejection of it. Um, but similarly, what he embraces under the term the postmodern is reformulated elsewhere in the inhuman and in other discourses that have been taken up um, more recently. I mean, there, there, there've been a, a flurry of um, articles in response to um, one particular uh, essay in the inhuman. And so the inhuman is, is a, is a way of I mean, sorry, the postmodern is a way into his other work. Um, mm. And actually it is worth going back to um, the, the notion of performativity, maximum output for minimum input, it remains a damning indictment of the efficiency that underpins our attitude to economy and education. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, the term, and this, in short, the term carries lots of baggage, but Leotard's writings that cluster around the term still offer a way into some important questions. And historically, and this is maybe what's justified my own kind of return to it, it was on the back of the postmodern condition uh, in France that he was invited to become the co-curator of Les Immateriaux. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and he and he was aware of that. I mean, he had to finish Le Différent before he uh, engaged with the exhibition. But I th- I th- increasingly see continuities between what um, at first glance seem like disparate engagement in in different activities um so there are through lines that are worth going back to and kif um i want to ask you actually do you think that this um oh john what did you call it the work what was the word that you just used this term it's done that the critiques of the postmodern have done like reputational harm. Reputational harm, mm. right? Reputational, yeah. Um, so the reputational work that that's been going on in Europe around this is it different than what's happening in America? I would imagine it is, right? I mean, um, post-mo- the the postmodern has been blamed for Trump. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But no, but I don't true. think that's. But is that happening in Europe as well? Not to the same extent. I mean, there are a couple of books that kind of link it to post-truth and, um, you know, and and Leotard becomes the straw figure. Uh, It needs some serious rebuttal, for for sure. Yeah. Um, But it's that usual thing of, do you want, do you give it more, do you draw attention to it more by giving (laughs) giving it redress or do you let it fizzle out? Or do you do, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted, when, John, when I invited you to be in the piece, in the in the um, collection, I asked you very explicitly to, like, do something on the Afro-postmodern, because I knew you mm-hmm. had this, you had this, you know, co- concept that you were, that mm-hmm. you were working with and developing. And I thought, okay, so how do we, how do we take it in some different direction, right? Yeah. How do we take it in some, in some more living direction now? 
And I have to say, you know, as a reader of the volume, I, I contributed. And as you said, um, you know, what interests interests me um, going into writing that project was this notion of the postmodern um, and the different and what it, you know, how that plays out differently in different geographies, especially in Caribbean thought around fragmentation and and the proliferation of narratives rather than the meta narrative of conquest or the middle passage um, or sorry, not the middle passage of colonialism. But what was interesting, you know, that's how I came into that particular essay and into writing for the volume. But then when I was reading the volume, you know, I'm curious if this resonates with you all was um, how I had sort of thought of the, the postmodern as this thing where other notions in Leotard's work sort of were variations or iterations of, but as I read the volume, I thought in some ways it seems like the, 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 the postmodern functions it, for Leotard, but really for the, the, the essays in the volume uh, mostly as a sort of antechamber where then you also inherit this whole set of other organizing theoretical, I don't want to call them concepts, but sort of theoretical frames in Leotard's work that can do the work they need to do after that antechamber of the postmodern. And then, and that way I felt sort of, um, in a, I mean this in a technical, not a self-deprecating way, but a sort of remedial sort of mm. effort talking about the postmodern because that postmodern sort of gets you prepared for all of these other things in Leotard's work to resonate differently. Yeah. I don't know if that, you know, if that's, you know, that, you know, I just, I'm invested in this notion of the postmodern for various reasons of my own. Uh, not a small part of it maybe is I always wanted to be a cranky old man in academia and crank, what do you, how do you be a cranky old person in academia? You hold on to something everybody's put behind you. It's yeah. still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> so I'm a little bit that guy, but the volume, t- I guess I'm saying like taught me about sort of what comes after that with Leotard's work, that they're not iterations. They are actually concepts that make sense after the postmodern. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, if it's a way into that other work that is, is still less well-known, particularly from the 80s and 90s, right. then, it, then it works. And, and maybe, I mean, the, the link to post-truth and Trump aside, um, it may be that the, the, the baggage and the kind of associations that, that I, I have with a misinterpretation of, uh, of the postmodern as somehow being lumped in with uh, cultural, cultural postmodernism um, is no longer relevant because to students, you know, to younger students, the, the, the art world of the 80s, you know, it's, it's not on their radar anymore. So we don't have, I don't have to make the apologies of, you know, that's not what we're talking about because they don't know that. So we can come <clears throat> in afresh to some extent. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I keep to having to remind myself as, as I'm, I'm sure others of my middle years um, would realize that, you know, things have changed a great deal since the eighties yeah. and nineties in terms of um, the, 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 the cultural spheres that we're moving in. Yeah, so that, that that idea of a remedial um, th- that you mentioned, John, um, works on many levels. I think there's a remediation and, and a remedial work that we need to do ourselves as well, um, particularly with something that we think we know well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
the postmodern condition is probably true for, for for many scholars of our generation. We think we know it well, but actually, do we? Yeah, yeah. And do we know where it sits in relation to that that really intense volume, the different? Mm-hmm. Which is a not as easy a read, yeah. I have to say. I reread Absolutely. it for my essay, and I was like, let me stick to the postmodern yeah. condition. This shit's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, I don't mean, know that's what to say. that's why. Yeah, when Kiff and I met at that Indiana I at that IU symposium, which was on the different, we were both like we immediately sort of like whisper to each other at the banquet table, like when's the last time you read the different, <laughs> like yeah. what are we actually going to say? Like, like this is really hard. Like this is like, I'm not in grad school anymore. I don't have those chops anymore. Like how, how do I even, you know, how, how do I um, s- s- reconnect to a kind of conceptual fluency right around mm-hmm. that book? Um and the postmodern condition is a much easier book, and and of course one of the reasons that it it was much more widely read is what were the books that came before? <laughs> um, libidinal economy, like who was going to yeah, read which that? Which hadn't been translated at that time anyway. So yeah, and yeah. and it's you know and it's super super. It's that's a rough rough read <laughs> that one. You know, that's, that's, and, a riot. that's a riot. Yeah, <laughs> and like discourse figure, you know, God help us, like who's going to read that? So. Um, yeah, so suddenly along comes this really quite user-friendly book um, that mm-hmm. that makes these these kind of interesting claims and these predictions about the future, right, and this report on knowledge. And it's kind of has these quaint anachronisms in it that when you read it mm-hmm. now, you're like, well, that's not what happened with the internet. <laughs> it's like, that's not what, like, yeah, because it's like 1979 or whatever. Like, yeah, of course it's not what happened with it, but it's kind of what happened, but it's not, but we're like, this is not what happened. Um <laughs> And it's all, it's like reading Baudrillard or something where like he gets it yeah. almost right, but then like it went a little bit weirder than that. Um, and so you have to you have to kind of make those mappings and adjustments um, yeah. to figure out how to actually use these these theoretical tools for the present, right? Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're. I think that's right. I think you're both right. I love John what you said about the the other concepts making sense only after the postmodern. Mm-hmm. Um, is announced as what it is, right? And then, and then I also love this idea that like we actually haven't read that book properly yet. <laughs> well, I, what's disturbing for me about that, you know, I'm saying, you know, I really started to see this notion of the postmodern and, and Leotard as an antechamber to these other concepts. That was something that I came to a couple weeks ago. <laughs> After uh, having read his thought, you know, in the the late '80s and early '90s, and thought about it and assimilated it in its own way, but that's, I mean, that's that's why we read and learn. That's what I try to tell myself. And I will say, you know, you said the report on knowledge with the postmodern condition. Uh, one of my favorite uh, classroom moments ever was teaching that book in a course called Afro Postmodern, and a student asked, "Who was the report for?" Do they like? In France, do they just give reports on like postmodernism <laughs> to the government? I mean, I the answer like, is yes. <laughs> I was like, I love that idea. Sure, <laughs> definitely. But I'm, I guess any time I publish at a state-sponsored institution, it's a report to the government. So <laughs> let's call it that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's worse than that. Yeah. I mean, do, do you know who who it was a report to? No, who was it? Because it was the to? Council of it, Universities of Quebec. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and right, and so it has live a, in this podcast. Remember, I had completely yeah, forgotten that. Sure, 
And and you are absolutely right that it's the weirdest report ever to have been commissioned. <laughs> um, but politically, I, I aspire really as a chair of committees to put in a report like that someday. <laughs> yeah. But you know, <laughs> but politically, in terms of the the, the kind of the French speaking minority in Canada at the time and yeah. the uh, the moves to uh, to separatism, it, it has a, a particular political resonance that. Uh, it is lost, and and then also there's a. I think it's right at the end. There's a little nod. Or it might. I don't know. It's the end of the the the, the preface. Um, there's a little nod to what they're doing at uh, at Paris Huit, where he was teaching at the time at Vincennes, um, where in order to the the, the government said that uh, that Paris Eight couldn't actually uh, confer degrees anymore, and so the philosophy department created their own their own institute of philosophy that meant that they could give credits to students that they could that carry to another institution, even mm. though their host institution wasn't allowed to. So you've got this kind of ruse going on. Um, and, you know, so the, the educational background is really, really key. Yeah. And that helps. It's important to know. I'm just sort of putting it now in my head. It also makes an interesting way of, of reforging an approach to it as a diasporic text. But. Mm. Mm. Uh, text speaking to diaspora but um <laughs> before i get into my own projects um let me ask you uh, both and start with you kif about the translations in the volume i love it when collections have new translations and you, there are three essays and an interview um and i think that this i love it when they're um in the vo- in volumes because they just add you know it adds to the to the flow and and the the content in such important ways um, so I'm curious, you know, in addition to just you know, helping us round out a fuller picture in the volume of his work, you know, and having this moment where speaking in his own voice, um, you know, what do you think these translated pieces, you know, what is it about any or all of them, uh, that you think advances or moves our thinking about Leotard in a different direction? Like where, what are some of the nuances in his thought that you think get picked up in these three essays and interview? Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm glad you glad you asked that. And uh, there are two pairs. That's the way that we've arranged them. And we've we've deliberately not put them in chronological order. So the first pair are two short essays from 1990-1993. Um, one called "The Other's Rights" and one called "The Affect Phrase." Um, they're actually existing translations, but they've been somewhat buried in uh, other mm-hmm. publications. So it was a chance to bring them out again, and. I think placing them together does interesting things, particularly those two pieces to start with, because they bring out the idea of, or the theme of infancy, um, Mm -hmm. which is something that is described by Leotard as the state from which or in which one cannot speak or rather articulate in a conventional sense or in a way that's conventionally regarded as meaningful. And um, at the risk of doing a little plug here, it also works as a prelude to a publication also coming out from Bloomsbury in January, which is a full translation of a, of a, a book by Lyotard that's never been translated um, called Lecture d'Enfance, uh, which we've um, translated as Readings in Infancy. Uh, I've been working um with Robert Harvey on that. So it, let me just correct myself. The, uh, the various different essays from that book uh, have been translated in various places, but we're bringing them together in a, in a okay. volume. Uh, and and so that that notion of infancy, I think, has real 
real currency. Um, but just to go back to one of those essays, specifically the affect phrase, um, I've, I've regarded this as a really important essay for some time, um, partly because, and I, I don't know whether this is going to sell it to you or not, partly because it, it comes from the, the project he was working on, which in some ways is uh, after the different or he referred to it as a supplement to the different. Um, in the last uh, decade of his life, he was planning to do a different too, if you like, and okay. the affect phrase was part of this. And he talked a bit about it as everything that he'd left out of the different. So art, the body, affect, Freud, and and this short essay called The Affect Phrase starts with a question from the different, um, which is, is feeling, is feeling a phrase? And mm. in a few short pages begins to point to the unarticulated voices that are indicative of those which are silenced and which constitute the debt that is referred to in many of the contributors throughout the volume, the, the debt that runs throughout Western, so-called Western history and discourse mm. so i mean that that is that is i mean I, that that's my big sell really for the affect phrase i think it's a beautiful beautiful written and really provocative piece um i agree i agree the other pairing are new translations <coughs> and um they're from the 70s <laughs> from just before the postmodern condition um and in some ways that's deliberate because you know the postmodern condition didn't come out of nowhere um the, a little bit they came to me a little bit more accidentally in that the earliest text called apathy in theory which was first published in 1975 and then collected in a volume in 1977 um was sent to me by the translator roger mckeon um who i've worked with on various leotard projects and he does this occasionally he'll send me something <laughs> and kind of say oh what can you do with this and um when i said i wanted to put it in the volume i didn't realize how important it actually would be because mm -hmm. what what leotard does in this is he it's a close reading or a close listening to freud's writing of the last sections of beyond the pleasure principle and what leotard is drawing our attention to is the fact that this is freud being not really quite convinced by his own argument, but going with it anyway. Hmm. He's he's saying, "Oh, this doesn't fit the theory, but I'm I'm on something, and I'm just I'm just going for it." And it's this attitude of kind of uh, wandering or forgetting about the theory. That's what he's called apathy, having apathy towards yeah. the theory, towards the strictures of the theory, and just going for it. That that Leotard really tunes into, and I think there's a resonance there to the way that he wants us to think. Um, against the theoretical strictures, if you like. So um, th that, that's been a real surprise for me. And then lastly, uh, quite a long interview from late 1978, which really highlights the importance of uh, art and cinema to Leotard's thinkings. It's an interview done for a, a, a small circulation um, art magazine in France called Art Présent, um, it's well out of circulation in any language, and it, it, it's uh, it was it was it was it was the first thing that I've 
tried to translate on my own and I'll be honest here I made a hash of it uh, <laughs> and went help to Roger who cleaned it up into a way that makes it readable <laughs> um, but but the, the, there are things in there that are, are, are provocations and mm-hmm. so it's not just a fleshing out of things that haven't been translated it's a it's actually a, a getting excited about stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Margaret what about uh, anything about the essays yeah, I'll only add, I'll just <clears throat> add very briefly that um, until you, yeah, I'll just add very quickly that when you first asked me, John, about my motivations for putting, for doing this, I had completely forgotten the, uh, the, the translated chapters, that those parts of the book, because I was nervous about this podcast. And so I didn't remember anything. But, but I should add that I think my, by far the thing that was the most exciting to me was to be able to be a part of putting together a volume where there would be things that had not been translated before into English. Um, and to work with somebody like Kif, um, I mean, there is nobody like Kif. There's no one, as far as I know, um, who knows Leotard's work and life as well as Kif Bamford does right now. Um, on the planet, <laughs> globally speaking. I mean, he is. They're all in France. Okay, don't well, worry. I haven't met them yet. Well, let's see. They can email me. Um, they can email me an outrage. I, but as far as I know, um, I mean, you're you're in there. You're like the the nerd, you know, fanboy par excellence. Um, and I really wanted to work with someone <laughs> who is a specialist on that level. And I really wanted to work with with specialism on that level. And with that work ethic and with, with, um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and adjacent to people like, like Roger McKeon and Robert Harvey and, and these people who are, you know, still those, those, those kind of nineties era, you know, um, powerhouses of knowledge about, um, a piece of the canon, you know, and, and participating and sort of in creating the canon and, um, you know, disseminating the canon, all of that, all that super, super important work of translation. So that's all I'll say is I think that the translated bits, which I had absolutely nothing to do with are the ones I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they really always just add so much to uh, particular uh, collections, you know, single figure uh, collections. I'm really thankful for them. And, uh, that stuff on affect, I, I agree, is super interesting. And um, unfortunately, I think the the notion of affect <coughs> in philosophy, but sort of literary cultural theory generally, is gotten so vague. And I think it's one of those essays that really sets it in a longer discourse in, in Leotard's work and in that way for so much of 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, European, but especially. Yeah, I mean, French that's one, one of the reasons we were, we um, were uh, so insistent on including that piece was because everyone's doing affect theory. Mm-hmm. That's why we were like, yeah, <laughs> but nobody's talking. Yeah, nobody's we were talking like, about wait a minute. That's right. <laughs> like, yeah. you, want, you want affect? Here's some affect. Here you go. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yes, I like that. Let me ask you. Can, can I just please. interject a little bit just on, on the back of what of Margaret was saying about um, some of the figures that are, uh, are important here in terms of translations one thing we did want to do we talked about this was to um, include some of the people that have been really key in in establishing Leotard in English um, but also invite newer newer younger um, uh, thinkers as as well 
Um, but we ought to mention that the translator of the different, uh, Georges van der Nabil, has a chapter in here, which which mm. is so nice because um, it, 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 he, his translations have been so key. And yeah. whilst he's not here as a translator, I like the fact that he's here as a uh, as a writer on on, on Lyotard, and it's really beautiful what he's uh, interwoven. So that was just my little interjection there. No, I like that. Yeah, I, translators like editors um, of volumes right. get so little respect in terms of of right. intellectual contributions. But you know, where would any exactly. of us be without translations? And um, and I, I get very irritated with you know, when I'm on, on hiring or tenure promotion committees and editing, translating work gets sort of pushed to the side. I'm like, you know, every single yeah. one of us depends yeah, on this stuff. I mean, that's stuff. the actual like, contribution to knowledge. Really, like at the end of the day, 50 yes. years from now, the actual big contribution mm-hmm. to knowledge is going to be that's the stuff, is the translations and the, and the, and the publishing work and those decisions about who get you know, what gets published and how it gets put together and what gets taken out of circulation, mm-hmm. right? What gets out of print? That's why we wanted to do the other's rights because I think the other's rights piece is in a, the only place it exists is a book that doesn't exist anymore. That's right. Yeah. So, hmm. it's, okay. Second hand bookshops right. are the only place. You and can meanwhile, find it, yeah. it's, it's about the other's rights. <laughs> Another thing everybody's talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> Exactly. Yes. Yet another reason for people to get eyes on the collection. Let me ask you about the um, the division into sections. Maybe start with you, Margaret. About the there's the uh, opening section, uh, what resists thinking. Uh, second section on art, and the third section. These mm-hmm. and there, you know, in between these three sections are the the translations. Um, the third section is titled "Long Views and Distances," and I'm curious what you what you all uh, were thinking uh, as you made these divisions. You know, I, you know, and, and having edited collections myself, I know sometimes you have, you know, you put people in sure. sections when you invite them or when they give topic or you invite them to give a certain kind of topic. Other times you make those sections based on whatever people turn in. But those sections are really interesting. I mean, in the the sense that the very title and grouping themselves are uh, part of how the volume works. So I'm curious just to hear you talk, uh, both talk a little bit, starting with you, Margaret, about, you know, where, where these divisions came from and what work you think they do to help us understand what the essays and therefore the volume as a whole. Well, Kif, shall we tell John about how many times we went back and forth about this? (laughs) It was, it was in this whole process. That was the, that was the era (laughs) where we were in the most contact with each other that I think we were for the whole thing. Uh, It was constant. I was emailing you like four times a day. I was like, how about this? What if we do this? Um, And then you'd write back like, I like this. And you'd be like, no, but we should do it like this. And it was, um, was really something. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had a Google Docs. Oh, at it one was point madness, was just total madness. And I'd be like, "Do you have the latest version?" And you you would be responding to some version that didn't exist anymore. And um, so the thing about Google Docs, uh, you know, it's funny. They, on the one hand, they're always supposed to be up to date, um, but as collaborative spaces, they do have those kinds of uh, dramatic leg legs of, you know, getting caught up and. Um, did you change this? Did you change that? So go ahead, Margaret. Well, yeah. So, so all, all the drama aside, um, speaking seriously, we knew that there were certain things that we really wanted to include. Mm -hmm. Um, 
most notably, Kif was very insistent that there had to be a section on art practice or arts practice, as we first called it, um, mm-hmm. and that this was something that was that was that you know that was really at the heart of this book for him. Um, and he convinced me that 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 was the case. <laughs> um, so we knew that there would be a section on on that that we wanted and we wanted it to have a little bit of a different life than just the kind of usual conversations that happen sometimes in aesthetics about leotard. Um, mm-hmm. And because we, because we wanted it to be about practice, right? Precisely yeah. because it was about this question of like, how do we actually enact this in practice? Um, so we knew we wanted that. And we also knew that we wanted a more traditional kind of um philosophy theory commentary section and that's really that first one what resists thinking that Mm -hmm. there we wanted sort of more more recent work that had been done in this in this pretty kind of you know classical area um but then and this is i think is also something kif uh correct me if i'm wrong but i think it emerged a little bit also from the reports that we got from our readers yes Mm. right who um, who were quite adamant that that you know we we needed to go further in pushing this question of like leotard for the present, mm, okay, right? That it had to really that it needed to 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 sing more. That it needed to really be um, a new kind of book, and mm-hmm. so we 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 decided to um, to have a section that was more on questions of reception. Mm-hmm. Right of of take up and reception and citational practices, one that zoomed out a bit more um, and 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 looked at critique, um, yeah, like I said, just a little bit more zoomed out. So these were three things that we knew we wanted, and then it just I kind see. of you know c- came together more or less <laughs> on Google. Yeah, and credit to the um, anonymous readers because whoever they were. They were we don't serious. know who they were. No, so we love they were you. serious <laughs> later scholars um, yeah. who wanted this book to be the best it could be. You know, so yeah, it was no, a, and it we was could a real engagement there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we could. T- I mean, the the reports were like super heavy, and we were like, "Damn, these are like serious people." And you know, I felt like a kid. I was like, "Who are these people?" <laughs> um, yeah, and it was it was exactly what we needed. A sort of because it was the zoomed out perspective right it was the pers- it was the long view mm. so we were we had the, the the enormous you know pleasure and privilege of being read by people who had been reading leotard for decades and working on him for decades and and saying like no if you're serious about kind of turning a corner here then like and they really pushed us to so yeah so that's how we ended up with that with what you're calling that third section the long views and distances section um, yeah, I really, I, I love, I, I love them, it whenever referees are helpful. This is, you know, it's, they have yeah. such a bad reputation. And I think with single authored volumes, it can be difficult because we want these to be our ideas and so forth. And, but external critique is super important, right? But the emotional life of that is intense. I do think I'm sort of hearing that from, from both of you, um, especially Margaret, uh, that in an edited collection, that zoomed out moment is, you, you know, editing, you're, you are lost in the weeds, you know, you're having to harangue people to turn shit in. And then you're also editing their, you know, giving critical feedback and getting their edits or non-edits. And 
that zoomed out thing is is you know where referees can actually do incredibly important work if they take it seriously i'm so glad that they did that's actually heartening but you know there were so many moments along the way that that it could have been shaped very differently this book and each mm-hmm. of the sections that we came up with could have been its own edited collection ultimately like it could have been expanded easily into its because because i really think all of these framings are important you know mm-hmm. so yeah well let me ask about the third section um which interests me for a lot of reasons but that's the long views and distances is um where the essays move leotard's work into diff- into uh different geographies right algeria the black atlantic and china and so i'm interested sort of reading those and, and i think it's just three essays but still um, I think three really substantial essays um, that no, there really are, there say are four, something. John. Oh, there, there are, are four. Okay, it's okay. Yeah, there are four. It's yeah. it's the fourth one is not about a particular um, place. It's Geography. the one about capitalism, yeah. but it's written by a Polish scholar. That's, that's who had, right. Who yes. had been working? Yeah. So the fourth one is about global capitalism, which is an, a different distance. Right. Yes, mm. that's the geography yeah. of the entire globe. Yes, right. that's correct. Thank you for for <laughs> sure. correcting me on that. And I'm just curious then, you know, and uh, the, the global and the, the, the regional, right, North Africa, uh, China, uh, Black Atlantic. I'm curious how, you know, reading those essays in that section and then having a chance to reflect on, on, on Leotard's thought in light of them, how you think his work travels? Because this for me is, you know, as a, you know, as a comparativist, <clears throat> as, you know, that's, it's my intellectual identity is as a comparativist. This is always for me the question, like, how well does work travel? I'm not interested in this is work for only this place, right? But when you move over into these other geographies, some thinkers really resist that. Some some thinkers uh, are really uh, travelable, right? They're good travelers. And I'm curious to hear both of you sort of think and reflect a little bit on, on that notion of traveling Leotard's theory across different geographies in these volume in these uh, essays but also maybe you know that broader vision of you know what do you think there's something about his thought that's particularly lends itself to that traveling so kiff maybe yeah yeah sure um i mean i i, I think i think long views and distances is is a a title that takes us not only to different geographical location but also different temporal locations and yeah. so um your <coughs> um is working between germany and hong kong and what he's given us frames um leotard's th- thought in terms of uh the the, the context of china where he uh, organized a, a conference in 2019 um <coughs> but it, it's as much about <coughs> a Sorry. new technological um, situation uh, as as much as a, a geographical situation, and I think the the, the same with um, Bartosz's work as as well. Um, it's I think it's a really important section, and um, it perhaps is the one where it's pushed my ideas furthest. You know, in terms of where where there is work still to be done, it's it's not exhaustive, but it's indicative of 
several things. One, the need to acknowledge that, uh, to a large extent, the debates uh, that Leotard tradition was part of um, were and continue to be focused on the geographical context of uh, Western Europe and North America predominantly, um, but that, importantly, they themselves are embroiled in colonialism and the legacies of a particular um, globalisation. And it's for that reason that I think that Algeria is really key um, mm-hmm. to the, the the story of Leotard and where um, what is a predominantly historical chapter by Claire Pagès um, plays a really key function in understanding Leotard's politics and perhaps offering a way into thinking the European legacy differently. Mm-hmm. When Leotard went to teach in Constantine in Algeria, um, Constantine was in a French département of eastern Algeria. You know, it, it, this was part of France, according to, to France. And he was sent there as a representative of the French state to teach French philosophy in French at the Lycée. And the subsequent history that Claire Pagès tells us in her chapter indicates how important that experience was. His involvement as an activist with socialism au Babari for 12 years, mm-hmm. his pragmatic support for the FLN, despite his political reservations. And then she kind of indicates some work in the archive that's little known, which is a really detailed economic study of North Africa that he was doing in the 1960s when he studied, uh, or he registered for a, a doctorate under Paul, Paul Ricoeur, uh, mm-hmm. but, but never completed it. So there's, there's this uh, really detailed um, traversal that she takes uh, under the question of um, Leotard's Marxism. Um, and I think it really helps us to um, refute the assumption that Leotard simply turned his back on Marxism yeah? mm-hmm. or turned his back on politics. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. it is writ through and that political engagement comes from his experience in Algeria. Um, and as you rightly point out, uh, in your contribution, um, it's not about taking Leotard to other areas uh, where others are more directly versed, Know, such as the Afro-Caribbean writers that um, and thinkers that you discuss, but also to think about what their thought does to Leotards. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like the questioning that you bring to the implied singularity of the postmodern, which is just how we talk about it, the postmodern. Mm-hmm. And you're questioning, well, actually, you know, is it singular? How can it be singular? And there's a temporal disruption in your argument when you t- – when what you term Afro-postmodernism, the Afro-postmodern, is thought of as being simultaneous with the birth of European modernity. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, and I, um, I need to think that through. Um, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's a, a really interesting case study of how um, Leotard's thought doesn't travel in the way that maybe kind of you know it can seamlessly be deposited somewhere else but actually it needs to butt up against um other situations Mm -hmm. um and yet at the same time that temporal disruption chimes with um a lot of what is inherent in later what later terms the 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 postmodern that Mm -hmm. 
that in, important. Uh, and this this is where the, the, the term does come undone um, because it's not about post in the chronological sense at all um, uh-huh. because it's a, a process that's cyclical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so when you ask how his work travels, <laughs> it can only be with kind of like fits and starts. Um, as I said, there's an impossibility, mm-hmm. any idea of a seamless translation. translation. Um, but I, I think uh, it kind of echoes the way that he traveled when he was living. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about in the 90s when he was invited to South America and he went to uh, Venezuela and Colombia. And the way he was received was as a political activist that mm-hmm. perhaps he wasn't at that time, but that's how he was seen and received. And so you've got this this disjuncture actually happening whilst he's a, a, alive, which I, I find really, really um, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, I think it's an important section. And again, um, I was, I learned by making some kind of crude requests, for example, to <coughs> Yuk Huai, where I suggested that, you know, maybe he could scope the, 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 the understanding of Leotard and the postmodern in China. And he said, I don't want to do that. Um, and he gives us an indication in the introduction and the conclusion, but what he's really doing is actually <laughs> thinking through a different technological situation and the pervasiveness of what Leotard termed the system within mm-hmm. that, that context, um, which I, I think is, is, is really exciting and perhaps is the, the, what we wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. We, want, we, wanted, we wanted it to provoke uh, others to write something that would provoke us. And, yeah, yeah. And, and there were contributions in that section that really do that. I'll, I'll just add that, you know, I, I think it's important to note that Kiff and I are not, are working in two different geographical intellectual contexts as well, right? Yeah, when it comes sure. to, when it comes to what continental philosophy is, um, you know, Kip, Kip is very much not an American <laughs> and, 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 and sort of isn't, you know, didn't, didn't come up like you and I did, John, in, in that kind of nineties American continental philosophy, you know, thing that we did. Yeah. Um, his way to this is very different and than mm-hmm. mine, for example. And, um, he's much more rooted in the French context than I am. I mean, for me, yeah. this is, you know, this, I'm, I'm sort of an, I'm just sort of one of the living examples of how, you know, continental philosophy became an American invention. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm living that right. My, I mean, that's that my career. Part. So, yeah. so it's, we, when I, when I look back at all of this, like, right, it is, when I try to describe the, the collection, I say, well, it's a very international collection. And it's like, but what does that mean exactly? And 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 I think there's there's a lot more to explore here. Um, I, I I love John when you said um, how Leotard could be a thinker of the of, of the diaspora or, or of diaspora and or like a diasporic thinker. Um, mm-hmm. And but also like how is like glo- globalism? I don't even know if that's a word. Let's say and diasporicity. How are those like? just, you know, essential human conditions now. Yeah. Right. And if they are, then what does that do to how we do commentary to how Mm -hmm. we do critique? Um, 
And so I think, Kif, I think we need to do, I, you know, Kif, since you and I, since we have, we have so much time on our hands, we should do another collection, I think. <laughs> Bloomsbury will be thrilled, I'm sure. Um, but I, I, I actually think that this section and the idea that the way that it came together and, and what emerged from it, what you and I both learned from it, um, would absolutely give rise to a whole, as we say in Texas, a whole nother book. Um, <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's, and to actually think about these as sort of methodological nodes, right? The regional, the global, the zoomed out, the diasporic, um, the, Mm -hmm. the en route, right? The, the, the migrating en route, right? The in motion, all of these as like, as, as ways to trouble critique that go beyond just, you know, interdisciplinarity, which we're all swimming around in right now. Um, Yeah there are all these other different in, inters that we could be exploring. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I do think that, there's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think there's something really interesting about Leotard's thought as, you know, in my own encounter with it and, and hearing you both talk about it uh, in this conversation, uh, especially, but there is something about his thought that does, you know, as you were talking at the beginning, Margaret, about this notion of, of, of this not notion this this experience of sort of close closure and suffocation and what breaks us out of that what are you know what opens up new horizons of possibility it's like a thought committed to to non-suffocation right, right. committed to a sense of opening up other possibilities that just travels differently and i do think i mean this is a, a bigger issue and yes do do another volume right with all of your time and energy but um <coughs> I think there's something, if you're sort of traveling out of France, there's something about these thinkers who have an essential connection to Algeria, French continental thinkers who have an essential connection to Algeria, whether it's Derrida, Zepinoir, or Lyotard's time, um, you know, teaching there and sort of the political lessons and legacies of that in their own thought. You know, that it's not that that's enough travel, but that's, that is this internal disruption. You know, for all the all the limits one might want to put to French thinkers at the end of its empire, right? That they're caught up in a sense of the colonial. Also, for those critics, right, of you know, like Lyotard, like Derrida, right? They're also working in this moment where the whole point is breaking open for new possibilities, and that just travels differently. It's it travels in a. It doesn't mean it's non-imperial, but it's resistant to imperial travel. You know, as you were saying, Kiff, it's not like sort of how can we fix Glissant or Walcott with Leotard. Rather, it's what does this actual point right. of contact do and mean? And some thinkers are suited to that and others not as well, I have to say. So let me oh, go ahead. No, I wasn't, I don't know that I had anything interesting to say. I was just thinking about, yeah, I mean, the, the very limited experience I've had uh, presenting on this kind of work in my native country, Poland, and also when I was working in Russia for a, a little while, um, presenting this kind of work and also sp- speaking to other specialists in those countries. When you, when you meet French philosophy specialists in like former Eastern Europe, it's it's a whole other world, right? In terms of what when those translations arrived, right? Or who was mm-hmm. who, who was reading whom when? It's a different timeline. It's a different um, interesting. 
it's a different kind of intervention, right? Because of what reading those thinkers, the alternative that it presented in the humanities to what had been available up until 1989, for example, or the 90, right? It's, 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 mm-hmm. there's, there, I feel like there's still so much unexplored about regionality and um, reception and, and, tr- and, tr- and really trying to faithfully show the, you know, what, what that was. Um, I mean, you know, then we start talking about impact in very different ways, yeah, right? <laughs> Not in that bibliometric way, but in a completely different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of impact, maybe as a transition um, uh, for a couple of, of sort of closing questions, you think about the impact of this volume. You know, when you put together, a, when you single author a book, it's one thing, and when you edit, it's another. But in each case, you know, we put together um, a collection of ideas, in this case, a collection of essays, with a hope that it has certain kind of impact, right? Changes the way people think, changes their intellectual sensibilities or shifts them, embellishes them in some kind of way. Of course, we can't control sort of where, what readers, I mean, in a good way, we can't control what readers think, right? How they walk away from our, our, our work. But I'm curious to hear you both talk a little bit about, you know, what you imagine wanting readers of this volume to walk away with, right? How, how their sensibilities would be shifted, whether it's broadly or specific around French philosophy, around the arts, around Leotard's work, or just as uh, thinkers and intellectuals. How, would you, how do you imagine walking, uh, readers walking away from this book? Start with you, Kiff, and then Margaret. It's, it's the big question. You don't know, but you can hope. Um, I, I hope there'll be something somewhere in the contents of the collection that, that surprises readers, either because it's an engagement that they didn't expect or associate mm-hmm. with, with the proper name Leotard, or perhaps, perhaps they detect a thread that, that weaves together some of the contributions, which aren't always intentional, but actually there are resonances when I pick up and, 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 uh, read some of the contributions together. There are unexpected resonances uh, that that, that mm-hmm. trigger new thoughts, and you know, and maybe it's something like that apathy and theory idea of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, resistance to the already thought that that the kind of Margaret mentioned earlier, um, or perhaps it's a writing or a doing that rubs against what we've proposed, but at least um, it gets the discussion going. Or maybe it's kind of this podcast, you know, that, that gets people en- engaged to uh, to to do that remedial work and to go back to uh, Leotard yeah. for new possibilities. Yeah, I think for me, it's 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 what I've said already. Th- this the idea that I can't shake, which is that Leotard is more relevant now than ever, and it's not it's not Leotard. I, I it's 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 this these this. Um, yeah, this, what, what resists, right? This, um, this possibility of, of, uh, of, of, I don't know, of, 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 of something happening at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and how we do work that, that allows us that and, and orients us towards that, um, 
that I think is, is more relevant now than ever. And that's all, that's all I would hope for. Um, that people are just sort of reminded of something that when I say it, it sounds so obvious, right? It sounds like, well, of course, that's what you want thinking to be. And of course, that's where we're in the humanities. And of course, that's why we teach and all this stuff. But uh, it, I, I feel like, um, I feel like there are fewer and fewer and fewer places where we get a very direct statement of that. Um, and a very, very direct reminder that we're allowed that, mm. that we mm-hmm. have the right, that everyone has the right to that. Mm. That's like what I'd that like, you know, that's, that's, that for me, that's the big, that's what I walk away from when I read Leotard. And that's, that's all I'd like, you know, that's my big, it's my gift to the world today. Well, I was going to turn the question around to you, um, and you in some ways uh, answered it, Margaret, and maybe, I don't know if you want to say another word or two, but, you know, just as readers so walk away from, from what they read differently, when we edit and write, we also walk away differently, right? It does transform us. Um, and I think obvious, that obviously happens with authored books, but it happens with editing works, right? People put essays in the collection that you didn't expect, uh, open up ideas that, you know, make you anxious or inspired and everything in between. Um, so we walk away as editors and writers differently, right, from from the work we do. So I'm curious to hear you both maybe say a final word about that. How, how do you leave this volume? And whether that's sort of how it impacts, you know, how it's impacted your sensibilities, or even, you know, if it's sort of connected to a further project. Right. So I hate that thing of like, well, you know, we're talking about this thing you just work so hard on. What's your next thing? I, I, I don't want to do that. But at, at the same time, I know everybody has uh, uh, ideas. And so feel free to speak to that. But how do you walk away from it differently, Margaret and then Kiff? I mean, Kiff and I, in many ways, couldn't possibly be more different um, in our relationship to this stuff. So, uh, I, I was, I was kind of, I, I, I was dragged into this or maybe I dragged myself into this kicking and screaming a bit because I had done so much work to get distance from, you know, sort of classical academic commentary. I didn't want to do this anymore. I don't, I had, I had, um, you know, paid my dues already. I'd proven that I can do it. Now I want to do, you know, real work, relevant work. Um, and I think this showed me uh, h- how much I still love doing philosophy this way and reading <laughs> reading the the, the old timers. Um, it, it definitely <laughs> impacted how I approach them in the classroom. Um, so it really renewed my love of um, of of just kind of, you know, doing old, old school (laughs) of the old school. Um, not just, Uh not just that those guys are old and dead, not just like the old dead white men. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, them too, but, but also just just doing the, doing the work in that way, right. Having that work ethic and, um, doing the work that I was trained for so that I, I found my way back to that. And I'm super grateful for that because it just, it made sense of my, it made sense of the trajectory of my professional life. I like that. Kiff, how about you? It's the first 
um, time I've edited a book with living authors, and um, I come away with this with deep appreciation for all editors out there, um, and also w- with gratitude for the way that people have stepped up to our requests. Um, mm. And on the back of that, I mean, I, I got asked to do a chapter recently, and I was umming and ahhing, and my, uh, my wife said, oh, come on, so many people have said yes to you. You've got to say yes back. And I thought, well, there is that reciprocity, and there is a kind of a, a gift <laughs> yeah. there. So um, that, that, that's part of it. But um, certainly the, the, the beauty of collaborating with Margaret has been that um, we have made requests from areas that I – wouldn't have been familiar with before or had the contacts to do or the confidence to do so it's it's mm. it's broadened my um my engagement with the leotard uh, beyond perhaps the the spheres i had before uh, in a really productive way and i think the conversation we've just had in relation to long views and distances is something that i'd like to pick up further um how that might be, I don't know. I mean, I'm. Uh, well, you know my number, kid. Yeah. <laughs> Call yeah, me. There's, a, there's always possibilities out there. Yeah, and and uh, just on the last note, uh, when we were discussing that, you're absolutely right to say that we are already at a distance. We're we're not talking about this in French. We're not talking about it in a French context, and that's one thing that perhaps isn't explicit in the yeah. volume is the way that. Leotard's work in English has been received, and there's a particular trajectory to that uh, that has uh, has made it what it is, um, which is really curious. Well, it sounds like there's at least the possibility of uh, you joining the you know hundreds, if not thousands, of us who have edited things, sworn off editing because of the labor, and immediately taken on new editing projects. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, a preemptive uh, sort of rest in peace to your time <laughs> if you take up these. But uh, I love this volume. I, I think you know I was so happy to have a chance to contribute, and for me. Um, you know, as you put it, Margaret, sort of revisit the old timers as increasingly an old timer myself, right? As we become old timers. So you keep um, saying, I don't know what you're talking about, John, but you keep <laughs> talking about this aging. I, I don't know. I mean, speak for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, every time I get a haircut and they wheel me around, you get to see the back <laughs> of your head and I'm like, fuck this, man. Yeah, well, don't, don't <laughs> I, didn't sign, I didn't sign up for this part of life. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's a fantastic volume. I, there's so much in there for so many different kinds of readers to um, to be challenged and to learn. I mean, I think it's a volume that teaches a lot. It taught me a lot. And I'm really glad you all made the time. I mean, this, this conversation has been fantastic, super smart and interesting. And uh, I hope it helps people get eyes on it. So I really appreciate your time and uh, energy uh, working through, you know, some of the big ideas about the volume and uh, also the imperatives that come out of it. I think they got really nicely articulated in the volume and especially in this conversation. So thank you for that. Thank you, John. Thanks for thanks for inviting us both. And this is the first conversation we've had, Kiff and I, since the Mm. book came out. So excellent I love it. every once we needed, in a while we needed this <laughs> it's yeah, nice right. to be the first all right take care y'all thank you take care bye bye